Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from Psalm 89, verses 1 through 4. I will sing of your steadfast love, O Lord, forever. With my mouth, I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations. I declare that your steadfast love is established forever. Your faithfulness is as firm as the heavens. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to my servant David, I will establish your descendants forever and build your throne for all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, everyone. Welcome to the fourth Sunday of Advent, and we have been exploring in a sermon series called Comfort and Joy, we've been exploring the answer to this question, what does it look like to be a believer and to live in this time of Advent? And we have used different uh, metaphors, sort of word pictures throughout. The first Sunday was about bread and bread baking. The second Sunday was about farming. Last Sunday was about the taking of a pilgrimage of some kind, and today, the little uh, metaphor that we will use has something to do with with caring for memories, and specifically, memory care. I I am fascinated ever since Kelly's sweet mom uh, went through this process, I'm fascinated with these, these entities that are tasked with caring for people who are losing their memories, and I, and I just love the whole concept of memory care. And, and I think I love it not only because there is such a pastoral move and moment there uh, at every turn, but I think I love it too because it seems to be a place where science and art make really good partners, really good partners. In fact, I want you to see this. This is a, a woman who has grown up playing the piano, but now, because of her disease, she can't remember that she can play the piano. In fact, when asked to play, she just says right out loud, I, I, don't, I, I don't know how to do this. Watch, watch this. Go ahead. Okay. Of the Moonlight Sonata. Okay, go ahead. I don't know it. That's fine. I don't know it. And then she just tears right into it. Psalm 89 is similar in that it is one of those psalms that you sing in order to remember. Actually, it also is a psalm that you sing in the hopes of helping God to remember. Because sometimes we do that, right? We, we sing in the hopes that we can be reminded that God is good. 
I don't know about you, maybe I'm just t- telling them myself now, but sometimes I sing in the hopes of reminding God that God is good. <laughs> don't forget, God, don't forget me, us, don't forget. Psalm 89 is a song like that. It is a long, long psalm. It's the third longest of all of the psalms, 52 verses. It is long enough that it's really, we think it's perhaps a compilation of three different psalms. It is big enough and long enough that there are distinct moves in this particular song, and it is different kinds of psalms all rolled into one. As you can probably tell, this was a song that might have been sung, let's say, at a coronation. You have a new monarch, a new leader, and, and you might sing at least a portion of the song at that, at that new uh, king's coronation or that new queen's coronation to remind the king and queen, to remind all the people, and to remind God, hey, this is your chosen person. You need to kind of keep doing what only you can do. But it, then it makes a turn, and, and in the turn, it's still really, really good. In the second movement, let's say, of this particular song, God is speaking, and God is actually acknowledging, yes, I am that God. More importantly, I am your God. And then the voice changes again, and in the third move, that is not included in our preaching text today, but I think we are intended to at least explore it. In the third move, another voice says, yes, God, but have you forgotten? Have you forgotten? Are you absent? Are you busy? Are you angry? Let me give you some historical backdrop for this. We think that this particular psalm would have been written and then sung, let's say, performed at the fall of Jerusalem, somewhere in the 580s B.C., when the final battle was fought and lost, and lost in a way that caused the entire city to fall. Worse than that, caused the temple to fall. It was in ruins and rubble. Perhaps even worse than that, the monarch, the king, the one who was supposed to be the tangible evidence of God's commitment to us was not just defeated, but killed. Now what? (laughs) This is a psalm that asks the question right out loud, now what? Where do we go from here? You may already know this, but the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, is actually divided into five different smaller books, and this is the end of book three, and the end of book three ends with this question, now what? Now, where is God, and what do we do now? It's almost as if Psalm 89 could have been written in 2020, (laughs) Where is God? What is God doing? Is God absent? Is God angry? God, you remember us, right? And you remember not just that you are God, but that you are our God. We sing today, Lord, yes, to be reminded, but we sing also in the hopes that you'll be reminded that we are in this thing together. And so it starts out like this. 
Verses one and two, I will sing of your steadfast love, O Lord, forever with my mouth I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations. I declare that your steadfast love is established forever. Your faithfulness is as firm as the heavens. Skipping down to verse five, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Now, when this was written, when this was written, there was this common assumption that there was always a tournament of gods up there somewhere. And this psalm acknowledges that there is this tournament of gods somewhere up there. But this psalm also acknowledges that God wins this tournament every single time. Verse 6, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God feared in the council of the holy ones, great and awesome above all that are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is as mighty as you, O Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab, which is sort of the mythical monster of chaos. This is the representation of chaos. You crushed Rahab like a carcass, and you scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Verse 11, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. God, you are the biggest. You are the strongest. You have brought a particular kind of order to chaos. You didn't just defeat chaos and push it out of the way, but in defeating chaos and pushing it out of the way, you brought a particular kind of order. Think all the way back to Genesis 1. If you're in disciple, you have heard Jason go over this. This is a great way to think about this. God blows into existence a particular kind of order. God defeats tohu vabohu, chaos. The Hebrew words that indicate chaos. But God blows into existence with God's own breath and life and spirit, a particular kind of order for creation. This is how that order can be understood in verse 14. Righteousness and justice, this is the order. This is the order that God intends. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. This is the kind of kingdom that God the King intends. Now, beyond this, God intends that this kind of kingdom would be extended through the very hands of a king, a tangible, earthly, human king or queen, a monarch of some kind. And that's where we have this leadership question come in. Skip down to verse 19. You spoke in a vision to your faithful one and said, I have set this crown on one who is mighty, and I have exalted one chosen from the people. In fact, I have found my servant David. Remember this story? With my holy oil, I have anointed him. My hand shall always remain with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. So God subdues the chaos, blows into existence a particular kind of existence, a particular kind of creation steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, justice. But then God says, I'm going to extend it even further by having a representative who will embody this same kingdom for me and who will rule and reign for me. And again, very real life, tangible sorts of ways. And it's going to be David. It's going to be David. We, we saw this in particular in 2 Samuel 7. Let me give you a little bit of a backdrop here. David is victorious. He is the king, and he has beaten back, at least for the time, all of his enemies. And he is living in a fantastic palace. He looks out the window of his palace, 
And there is the tabernacle, a glorified tent where the Ark of the Covenant was residing. And so David said to himself, this is not right. That I would be the human king, the extension of God's reign, and I would be in this palace while God lives in a tent. And so, God, so David said, you know what, God? I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. God says, do I need a house? Have I asked for a house? I kind of like living in a tent. I can kind of be mobile, God was saying. But, but, said God, I honor your heart in all of this. I honor your honor of my name, said God. And so God has this long speech in 2 Samuel 7. And God acknowledges David's heart. God acknowledges that David wants to do something good. And so God says, okay, you want to build me a house, but here's the thing, David. I am going to build for you an everlasting household. Household. He says this in 2 Samuel 7. He, David, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Now keep in mind, this is before all of the wars that would result in exile. This is before the kingdom divided into a northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah, where Jerusalem was. This is before all of that. There was peace. There was power. In fact, here in verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, said God, forever. Another way to say it. There will always be a Davidic king, someone from your line and lineage. There will always be a Davidic king on the throne, says God. I promise. I promise. Skip back now to Psalm 89. God's still speaking about God's anointed. I will set his hand on the sea. Remember, God controlled the water monster, all of the chaos. God says, I'm going to deputize this king, and this king will have the same sort of power over all of the chaos. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Now, this is also good. I, I kind of wrestled with myself. I want to read you another several verses. It looks like there's nine of them here because I think I can't do better than these verses. Listen to how God continues to commit God's self to this dynasty. Verse 28. Forever I will keep my steadfast love for him, and my covenant with him will stand firm. I will establish his line forever and his throne as long as the heavens endure. Verse 30. If his children forsake my law, and do not walk according to my ordinances. If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with scourges. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once and for all, I have sworn by my holiness 
I will not lie to David. His line shall continue forever, and his throne endures before me like the sun. It shall be established forever like the moon, (laughs) an enduring witness in the skies. People, I will wager that every day you get up, the sun will somewhere be in the heavens. And at night, I will wager you will see the moon every single night. God's testimony is like that, like the permanence, like the permanence of the sun and the moon, so shall this king and kingdom and this dynasty be. And then there was war. Before there was war, there was disobedience. There was transgression. The descendants of David did not adhere. The descendants of David were not obedient. There was a kingdom split. The northern kingdom falls in the 720s BC to Assyria. Later on, about 140 years later, here come the Babylonians to lay siege to the southern kingdom where you had the capital city and the temple, the home that was built for God. Over a period of years, slowly but surely, the Babylonians devoured Judah until finally here, it's all over. The wall is down, the temple is gone, the whole city is gone, and the king is dead. And now we're to the third part of this psalm. This is not God. This is the singer now saying, but God, now you have spurned and rejected him. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You, God, have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Verse 40, you have broken through all the walls and you have laid his strongholds in ruins. Now all who pass by plunder him and he has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all of his enemies rejoice. Skipping down to verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? It all seemed to be at an end. In fact, for years and years and years, and this is not the only time the scripture will say something like this, the voice of the Lord was silent for years and years. It was the perspective of the singer that all things had come to an end. I have been in the company of people who this year have said to me in one way or another, 2020, the year when something unexpectedly came to an end. We were here Friday for a funeral, beautiful funeral. Memorial service for one of our friends, for his mother, Brett's mom passed away. 
And, and they said this on a regular basis. It wasn't bad enough that she passed away. It's that she passed away alone. How many times have we heard that this year? I've also sat across the table from a person who said, my career's gone. <laughs> it's come to an end. Sat across the table from somebody else this year who said, I've, I've done everything I can do, but my marriage has come to an end. It's come to an end. Advent posture. What does it look like to live a life of faith? What does a good Advent message sound like? I can tell you this, it includes the lament that something has come to an end. It includes the anguish that says right out loud, God, where are you? 2020 has been a year-long lament, <laughs> a year-long season of Advent probably. In which there is this hope, like maybe there's something, but we need God to do what only God to do to help us because we are at an end. The singer of the psalm looks around and says, I don't see another king. And the king was supposed to be the tangible evidence that God's commitment to us was still good. I don't see another king. I don't see anybody in the family tree. And you all, the psalm ends like that. Because not every life circumstance ends like our favorite 30 or 60 minute TV shows. Not everything gets resolved. Does everybody know that not everything gets resolved in life like it gets resolved at the end of 30 minutes or 60 minutes or two hours or two and a half hours? Good guys don't always win, doesn't seem like. They do on my screen, they just don't in my life. I find that I resonate a little bit with this singer of this psalm who's asked, hey God, do you remember what you said? It sounded a whole lot like a promise. Do you remember? Because sitting where I am today, things have come to an end. It's over. It's over. One of the things that we need to say to one another at Advent, especially as we sense that things have come to an end, <laughs> especially when we're willing to label and define something as being over, we need to remind ourselves that God does perhaps some of God's best work when things have come to an end. Another one of the passages I could have used today was, was this one out of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. As it turns out, That Davidic line of kings was not cut off. 
As it turns out, there would be another king in the line of David. It's part of the reason why that genealogy stuff that you see that sometimes makes no sense at all, that stuff at the very beginning of the book of Matthew happens also to be in the book of Luke, but that one in the book of of Matthew is working really hard for you to see that there is a line, God's promised line, in and through David eventuates in this person we understand to be Jesus, the Christ. Another way to say that, Jesus, the anointed, Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah. In other words, it's not over until God says it's over. And God says it's not over. Hang on a second. You said you, you were just at a funeral on Friday. Yes. And Jason's very careful to say every time Jason does a funeral, Christians don't die like other people. We die in hope. That just because I may sense that something has come to an end, God is the only one who actually has the authority to say that something is actually at an end. Just because I wake up and say, it's over, it's over, and I'm not just talking about death, I'm talking also about deathly circumstances, like a pandemic, let's say. Like a god-awful election cycle. Like violence in the streets over the crucial issue of civil rights. Perhaps you have more than once said to yourself in 2020, uh, it's over. <laughs> As we know it, life is over. God, where are you? Where are you? This is why Psalm 89 exists because. All of that anguish and all that frustration and that wondering whether or not something has come to an end, all of that fits within the experience of Christianity. It's it's, it's actually a part of our faith. That is meant to be good news. That every time you come up to something that you consider to be an end, and an end that seems to be so final and perhaps even fatal, that you wonder whether or not God exists, you wonder whether or not God is angry, you wonder whether or not God is actually involved at all, Our faith includes those moments of anguish, and you are encouraged to say it and sing it right out loud because in the process of saying it or singing it right out loud, perhaps you are, you are reminding yourself and reminding God that only God, only God is the one who has authority to say when something has come to an end. Hear me say this. It is the testimony of Psalm 89 and all the other passages that I was handed today, it is this, this testimony right here. It's not over until God says it's over, and God says it's not over. There was an article in the June, 19, June 2019 edition of the Washington Post about a man by the name of Nick Harvey. Nick Harvey has a father, and I kid you not, his name is Paul Harvey, not that Paul Harvey, but a, sort of a British Paul Harvey, who was, during his life and career, a composer. Nick is also, the son is also a composer. But dad, who was also the uh, chief musical officer, let's say, at the high school, the secondary school, was known far and wide to be a composer. He, he wrote music 
He wrote a song one time called, Where's the Sunshine? Perhaps it was a modern-day lament. Where's the sunshine? The lyrics are, are simple enough. Where's the sunshine? Where's the joy? Sadly, Paul Harvey, the dad, uh, he got sick, suffered dementia. But on this particular day that I'm going to show you, after not being able to visit him for a long time, Nick brought dad home to his house. And his dad was drawn immediately to a piano. And this is what happened. Yeah, yeah. Play one of your pieces. Play Where's the Sunshine? No. Go for so important and he kept it in his heart may the music of the season help you to remember that God is with us Emmanuel yes life has a way of causing us to forget <laughs> and in so many ways 2020 has been anything but comfortable or joyous do you today resonate with the psalm singer do you find yourself asking God has forgotten? Do you wonder whether or not God is absent or busy or angry? Have you suffered an ending you weren't anticipating? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. And yet here we are in Advent. A season of hope and expectation, a season of lights and decorations, of stories and songs, but maybe you don't feel like singing and maybe you've forgotten the song. Again, you're not alone. 
Emmanuel still means God is still with us. Emmanuel means that even when things feel like they have come to an end, God is the God of beginnings. Every time we come to the table, if you think about it, we are remembering and rehearsing and retelling a story that seemed to have come to an end. I mean, we do use the language of broken body and shed blood, death and deathly circumstances. Dr. Regan, if you'll come to the front. I mean, right? I, I hate, I hate that we aren't able to do this the way that I think it ought to be done, but we will get back there at some point. But right now, this is what we have. But this can be the tangible reminder that it's only over when God says it's over and God says it's not over. <laughs> Broken body, shed blood, death, cross, and yet, each week we remind ourselves there was something more powerful than whatever it was that put Christ on the cross, and it's what brought Christ out of the grave. All the way back in Genesis 1, we said this, that in the chaos of creation, God blows God's breath, wind, spirit, and a different kind of creation emerges. God doesn't just defeat the chaos, God causes a very particular, specific kind of life to emerge, marked by words like steadfast love, faithfulness, justice, righteousness. Friends, in the same way that God wanted to extend God's reach in and through somebody like David, God has in fact extended God's reach through somebody like Jesus, and more importantly, God extends God's reach through the body of Christ as well, especially when we remember and we rehearse that stories are only at an end when God says that they are at an end. And until then, we must remember and rehearse that God says it's not over.